hello and welcome to this week's A Photographic Life. After a couple of weeks of special episodes, it's back to the old school format. And over those last two weeks, a lot has happened. Perhaps one of the biggest is the arrival of Threads to our world, uh, produced by Meta, if you're not already aware of it, already on it. I've had a lot of problems with Twitter over the past few months, as many people have, and I was starting to lose my passion and my interest for it. Now, I have to say that I use social media, I suppose in a way, as part of everything we do with this podcast and with the United Nations of Photography website. I'm not on social media as me. It's a tool I use as part of this, I suppose, a collected series of connections to do with communication around photography. And that's probably the first time I thought about it, actually, which is probably why my thought process is so garbled. But anyway, threads seems to be working. There is no doubt that my... Uh, kind of, uh, I suppose, what would you call it? I suppose my thread, my sewing point, <laughs> the area where everything comes in, my homepage, is full of stuff I don't want to read about. I don't want to read about people in the gym, uh, fast food things, or American baseball teams, or quite strangely, every single English football team out there. They obviously don't recognise at Meta that um, these things are quite tribal. But anyway, I'm hoping it's going to settle down. I'm hoping that it's going to be a new meeting place, a new town square, as is so often described, for all of us. So if you're not already on threads, I do recommend it. If you are on there and you want to find out what we're doing and follow what we're doing, then you can find us at the old Twitter hashtag of at uh, photo. Hopefully we'll see you there. Make sure you say hi if you come on board. Just to prove how long it's been since uh, we last had a chance for me to share my observations with you about what's been going on, um, I want to talk about Glastonbury, of course, the festival, not just the tour. Um, don't know if you were there. I haven't been there since the early 1980s, but it certainly looks very different today. Anyway, I saw recently that Martin Parr, photographer, of course, um, was criticised for the work that he'd been creating at Glastonbury. Uh, I'm not sure how often uh, Martin has been. He lives in Bristol, so it's only down the road for him. But anyway, as you may or may not know, over the last couple of years, Martin has been very ill. Um and uh, there, But he's continued making work, and, and obviously that has to be... Um, applauded. But there is no doubt that Martin's work can be very divisive and very much lead you to either a love-hate relationship. I'm not going to share where I am with it on it, um, but I certainly am a fan of his early black and white work, uh, very much inspired, I think, by Bill Jay's introduction of Martin to Tony Ray Jones. But anyway, I think this criticism of the work misses the point. The criticism is of him as a photographer. Uh, but rather than criticise that work, I started to think that perhaps you should reflect on that work in itself. 
Uh, there was a time when Martin's work was revolutionary. It was doing something different, uh, the work of New Brighton and so forth. But we've moved on. And I suppose once again, as so often with photography, it takes me to the world of music and thinking about those bands who keep playing a similar kind of music over the decade and then start to become rather repetitive and lose that early edge. And I think that's perfectly reasonable. And I think it's acceptable and it's understandable. So perhaps in future, rather than criticising the work made by these photographers who are still out there making it, maybe we should stop and think and reflect on our own work and think how that has evolved as we've gone on. This episode is really full of little short observations, I suppose, as um, I'm trying to fit in all of the things I've seen over the last few weeks. Uh, but perhaps one of the most important and perhaps the saddest in some ways, certainly for the photographers that it affects, is the fact that National Geographic has laid off its last remaining staff writers and photographers. Now, this was a little news story that I saw in the Washington Post, which was very relevant to me, actually, because I've been writing this book, as regular listeners will know, uh, now delivered to the publisher, about kind of the death of publishing and uh, using Vogue House and the closure of Vogue House in London as a metaphor for this death of publishing over the last uh, 60 years. Anyway, uh, I just want to read uh, from the Washington Post to give you this story, just in case you're not aware of it. So uh, the article by Paul Farr, he says, uh, the Washington-based magazine that has surveyed science and the natural world for 135 years reached another difficult passage when it laid off all of its last remaining staff writers. The cutback, the latest in a series under owner Walt Disney Company, involves some 19 editorial staffers in all who were notified in April that these terminations were coming. Article assignments will henceforth be contracted out to freelancers or pieced together by editors. Cut and paste, in other words. That was my add-in. The layoffs were the second over the past nine months and the fourth since a series of ownership changes began in 2015. In September, Disney removed six top editors in an extraordinary reorganisation of the magazine's editorial operations. Departing staffers said Wednesday the magazine has curtailed photo contracts that enabled photographers to spend months in the field producing the publication's iconic images. In a further cost-cutting move, copies of the famous bright yellow bordered print publication will no longer be sold on newsstands in the United States starting next year, the company said in an internal announcement last month. The magazine's current trajectory has been years in the making, set in motion primarily by the epochal decline, I should say, of print and ascent of digital news and information. At its peak in the 1980s, National Geographic reached 12 million subscribers in the United States and millions more overseas. It remains among the most widely read magazines in America at a time when magazines are no longer widely read. At the end of 2022, it had just under 1.8 million subscribers, according to the Authoritative Alliance for Audited Media. 
In an email to The Post on Wednesday, National Geographic spokesperson Chris Albert said staffing changes will not affect the company's plans to continue publishing a monthly magazine, but rather give us more flexibility to tell different stories and meet our audiences where they are across our many platforms. Well, as I write in the book that I was describing at the beginning of reading that piece, broadcast is the future for publishing. And when you get into a situation where broadcast film and TV companies start taking over traditional print media, they immediately see the benefits of where they've been working and the disadvantages of the uh, publications that they're taking over. All of this doesn't bode well for the photographer stuck in the past or hoping, as so many do and have said to me, to work for National Geographic at some point. As always, really well worth keeping up with the way in which publishing and media is going, checking out those news stories, because they do impact directly upon all of us. When I was the design director at Elle magazine in the UK at the end of the 1980s and beginning of the 1990s, working with my good friend Jeff Waring, um, I would always be most excited about the work that came in, created by fashion photographer Andrew McPherson. It was always a joy to lay out his images. They were strong, powerful, impactful, graphic, creative, everything you want from great fashion photography. Well, I'm really pleased to be able to invite uh, this week onto the podcast, Andrew McPherson, uh, to explain to us what photography means to him in less than five minutes. And uh, who is Andrew? I hear you cry. Maybe you're not aware of his work. Well, let me fill you in. So Andrew was born in London and currently resides in Los Angeles, California. He has worked as a photographer since he left school at 15, travelling the world to photograph musicians, actors and designers. By his mid-twenties, he was a regular contributor to magazines such as Rolling Stone, The Face, Elle, Bazaar and Vogue. His passion for photography and the darkroom process led him to become a master printer, However, as a lifelong environmentalist, the carbon and chemical footprints of film created a great deal of inner conflict, and he became an enthusiastic early adopter of the digital revolution in the 90s. Macpherson has created multiple bodies of personal work throughout his career, ranging from an exploration of the American landscape in his body of work, Chasing Ansel Adams, to studies of performance, flowers and spirit. McPherson is currently collaborating on several personal projects, including Immortality and Impermanence with artist Onik Agaronian, uh, Pagan Spirit, an exploration into Romanticism and Pictorialism with dancer Joanna Hadfield, and Trinity, the Crucible of Life, a poem of creation told through discarded objects. My name is Andrew McPherson. And I've been in love with photography for 50 years. Photography is my church. It's my way of celebrating the magic of this extraordinary journey of life. Photography has given me the gift of vision, 
of opening my eyes to really see the beauty of this reality. But photography itself was also a gift. At 13, I met John Biggleston, the photography teacher at my school, and it was his infectious love of the art and craft of photography that inspired and fired me to dedicate my life to our craft. I was expelled from school at 15 and went straight to work as an assistant slash apprentice in a dark Dickensian photo production house off Fleet Street. I made tea for grumpy old men who always complained about it, operated the copy camera and dried prints, all for £14 a week plus luncheon vouchers. I did it for a year so that I could say I had the experience required to climb the ladder of assisting, first through the classified in the back of the British Journal of Photography, then as one of the elite band of the AFAP freelance assistants. After five years assisting, I was blessed to find another teacher, a man who loved photography as much as me. We would spend hours discussing and dissecting images in magazines, books and exhibitions. To this day, Lord Snowden's passion for our craft remains a constant source of inspiration. He really was an extraordinary teacher and he was the last person that I assisted before becoming a photographer. The crazy thing is he was 10 years younger than I am now when I assisted him. To quote the Beatles, now I'm 64, photography has come more than become more than just a job capturing moments in time. It's become a history, my history, of this journey through life captured in fractions of a second. I became a photographer in my own right at 23. I'd intended to work in advertising, but a chance meeting with a young stylist drew me into fashion. And for almost a decade in the late 80s and early 90s, I got to photograph the most beautiful women in the world. That opened to me working backstage at the Paris fashion shows before they became a reality TV media circus. I got to shoot covers for all the right magazines and danced into the night with supermodels. At the same age, my father was flying blacked out bombers over Germany, high on amphetamines being shot at by guys his own age on the ground. I'm, incre I'm incredibly aware of the lucky breaks I've had, and gratitude has always been my attitude. But that said, fashion didn't hold my interest. I was far more intrigued with the idea of photographing the icons of our time. So in 1993, I sold my home in London and emigrated to Hollywood. Here, Lady Luck continued to smile on me, as I really have got to photograph the icons of our time. As a generalization, I can share that very few actors are genuinely entertainers, and most of them aren't even that gracious in front of the camera. By contrast, musicians are amazing. What they create is truly magic. I've been lucky enough to work with The Cult, The The, Tina Turner, U2, Janet Jackson, Oasis, Cher, and, for 20 years, Pink. All of them are incredible musicians, performers, but most of all, they're entertainers who love to put on a show. From my perspective as witness behind the lens, musicians have the best job in the world and they truly are the greatest stars of all.
The flip side of being 64 is that I've now been aged out of the craft that I've lived and loved for almost 50 years, which means I've now ascended to the ranks of being an amateur. At school, I was in the final year that Latin was part of the curriculum. The first word you learn is the verb amo, I love, which is where the word amateur comes from. I still love photography more than ever and every day revel in the joy of the gift of sight by taking pictures for my personal Instagram, which is Andrew McPherson underscore personal. If you want to see some of the work I've done in my work life, that's at Andrew McPherson underscore official. So that's my five minutes up. And I'll leave you with this simple answer to the question of what is photography to me? In truth, it is my spiritual pursuit. All right, guys, take care. Well, thank you, Andrew, for your contribution this week. I love the idea of uh, attitude is gratitude. He stole my take care at the end there as well, which was slightly (laughs) naughty. I don't know what I'm going to say at the end of this episode. But so much, I think, to um, check into there. And do have a look at his Instagram posts. If you're not aware of his work, I guarantee you're aware of his images. Anyway, uh, just something else I want to pick up on at the end of this episode. Uh, We were talking there, and Andrew was talking there, about age and being aged out of things. And I was talking at the beginning about threads and social media. And somebody sent me a link to um, a piece of text which was written by Douglas Adams uh, titled How to Stop Worrying and Learn to Love the Internet, which was... First, oh, which I should say first appeared in the news review section of the Sunday Times uh, in 1999. I'm just going to read it for you to end this episode. I think it's relevant. But the change is real. I don't think anybody would argue now that the internet isn't becoming a major factor in our lives. However, it's very new to us. News readers still feel it is worth a special and rather worrying mention if, for instance, a crime was planned by people over the internet. They don't bother to mention when criminals use the telephone or the M4 or discuss their dastardly plans over a cup of tea, though each of these was new and controversial in their day. I suppose earlier generations had to sit through all of this huffing and puffing with the invention of television, the phone, cinema, radio, the car, the bicycle, printing, the wheel, and so on. But you would think we would learn the way these things work, which is this. Number one, everything that's already in the world when you're born is just normal. Number two, Anything that gets invented between then and before you turn 30 is incredibly exciting and creative, and with any luck you can make a career out of it. Number three. Anything that gets invented after you're 30 is against the natural order of things and the beginning of the end of civilization as we know it, until it's been around for about 10 years when it gradually turns out to be all right really. Apply this list to movies, rock music, word processors and mobile phones to work out how old you are. Thanks for listening this week. Take care. 